you know anything about it? A little bit, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> so what they do is like get a scalpel and they cut like a huge, uh, you know, they cut through the skin on top of your head and then they take a drill and they drill out a hole and then they p- pull that aside and they begin to poke and prod in your brain while you are awake. Yeah. I couldn't believe this. You've heard of this because you're a nurse. And they'll leave it off if there's intracranial pressure for a while. They'll just, they'll mesh it. And then once the swelling goes down, then they can reattach. It's amazing. So here's why they do it. Because I read up on it this week. If you want a really cool article about awake brain surgery, it's by one of my favorite authors, a guy named Carl Alv Nosgaard. You ever heard of this guy? He wrote this massive book called My Struggle. Norwegian author. But he did an article for the New York Times about awake brain surgery. Just look it up. Look up Carl Nosgaard. I forget how to spell it. I don't remember. Um, but nonetheless, he recounts his experience going into the operating room while they're doing this. And the reason that they do it, and he often, the, the doctor that he profiles in this story is named Dr. Marsh. And the reason he's profiling him is because often Dr. Marsh does it on young people. Because that's, he does it on kids He does it on people who are young that have these specific type of brain tumors. And the reason they've got to do it while they're awake is because it's delicate work, as you might imagine. It's extremely delicate work because what they'll have is they have this like shock probe. And what they'll do is they'll stick the shock probe, they'll turn, they literally, there's a dial. They're like, turn it up to five, you know, turn it up to, you'll see see it if you read the article. But what they do is then they take this little shock probe and they stick it into the brain and they'll hit different little pieces of the brain with it, and then the body reacts to it, right? So if he hits with a certain amount of shock, the arm kind of goes up, or the eyelid will twitch, or the lips will go back and forth just by touching different parts of the brain. And that's how they figure out, uh (laughs) uh-oh, we better not cut that out. Just by touching that, and then what they do is they get in there, and they start to carve away at the tumor without touching any of those things, and they keep testing it as they go along. They test, they, they cut a little piece of the tumor, then they test and see, is there still feeling there? Can you still move your eye? Can you still see? Can you still taste? Can you still touch? Okay, cut away another piece. Okay, shock it again. Can you taste? Can you touch? It's an incredibly delicate process. But they couldn't do it like that if the patient was asleep. Because they would never know if they've gone too far. And so it's an incredible story about this Dr. Marsh and how he gets in there under this incredible pressure, and he literally has life and death in his hands. This brain surgeon has life and death in his hands. Well, we're going to learn this morning from Matthew that Jesus also, as the great physician the Bible calls him here in Matthew, he also does brain surgery. And it's also life and death. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that one of the things Jesus is doing, that the scripture is teaching us here, is that he is pushing back the darkness. And he does that by healing physical sickness. We've seen uh, several different stories already about him healing physical sickness. We see that here this morning in the case of the paralytic. We also see how Jesus heals social structures. He even goes beyond the individual, and he begins to heal entire... Jesus was in the business of healing the broken and sinful structures all around us. And then lastly, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus heals spiritual sickness. He actually does heart repair. 
Now today, we're switching gears a little bit. We're looking at a new aspect, a different aspect of what Jesus does in his healing ministry. And that is, he heals the mind. Quick, tiny, side note, theology primer. You ready for a quick theology primer? The reason we need to talk about the fact that Jesus heals the mind is because there's a theological concept that is biblical called total depravity. You guys ever heard this term before? Total depravity? It's one of these five points of Calvinism, if you've ever heard of that. But total depravity is a really interesting concept. Many people misunderstand what it means. It is biblical, but many people misunderstand. A lot of people, when they hear the term total depravity, they think, oh, does that mean the theologians are telling me that people are as bad as they could possibly be? No, absolutely not. In fact, it's much more hopeful than that. <laughs> total depravity does not mean we are totally as bad and nasty as we could be. The opposite is true. It means actually God's grace holds us back from a lot of the nastiness that, are, that we know we're capable of. But it does mean this. It means that every part of us as human beings has been impacted and affected by sin. Everything. Our spiritual life, our souls have been impacted by sin, broken off, cut off from a relationship with God. Our hearts have been impacted by sin. Our, our feelings and our desires are totally messed up by sin. But beyond that, our minds are corrupted. We have trouble even thinking right thoughts. And that's what Jesus is actually getting at here this morning as he is confronted by one of the groups that often clashed with him, the Pharisees. So let's look at that for just a second as we dive into our passage. And, and if you're a note taker, here's how it's going to break down. Jesus corrects thinking. Jesus does brain surgery in two ways in our passage this morning. The first is he, he gives us right thinking or gospel thinking about his identity. And secondly, he gives right thinking or gospel thinking about sin and salvation. Those are the two things we see from our scripture this morning. And we, we are, those windows are opened for us by the Pharisees. So first, let's dive right into the action. Okay, so these guys come up to Jesus, and we have actually a fuller picture of it in Luke. These guys come up, and they're like, hey, we've got a paralytic. Our friend can't walk. And they're desperate to get him in front of Jesus. So in Luke, which is a more complete picture of the same story, same story, Luke says they ripped off the roof of one of the homes, and they lowered him through the roof because the crowds were so big around Jesus. They were desperate to get this guy in front of Jesus. Why? Because they had heard there's this man walking around the earth right now who is literally healing people of disease. <laughs> in fact, there was a rumor going around that he had raised someone from the dead. So our friend is a paralytic. We got to get him in front of Jesus. This is of utmost importance. Rip the roof off. I mean, I'm sure the homeowners were pleased with the fact that they messed up their entire house. But nonetheless, desperation. So they lay him before Jesus. And what does Jesus say first? Of course. To this man who's a paralytic who obviously needs to be healed. What does he say to him? Sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What? <laughs> That's, it's, it's silliness if you think about it. It seems incongruous. It seems confusing. Well, of course, these, these people ripped off a roof to get this obviously injured, hurt, broken person, 
physically broken in front of you, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Can you, I mean, can you imagine the guy lying there? He's like, do what? My sins are forgiven. In fact, then we get the window into the Pharisees' thinking. This is where it comes. This is where the identity part comes in. The Pharisees, and, and this is the cool part, Jesus is like, I know your thoughts. <laughs> the Pharisees were like, who does this guy think he is? Blasphemy. What was blasphemy? Does anybody know what blasphemy is? Especially according to the Jews. Blasphemy was a person claiming to be or do what only God could be or do. So they knew, they knew in their hearts as they watched him that Jesus was claiming and he was being God. They knew it instantly and they were like, blasphemy, not happening. And here's the interesting thing about that. Jesus says, and this is something for us to kind of just sink into our hearts a little bit this morning. Matthew records Jesus saying, why do you think such evil thoughts in your hearts? Have you ever thought about that? That it would actually be evil for someone to think that Jesus was not God? That's powerful. But that is what Matthew is claiming here. That it's actually evil to think that Jesus is not God. And Jesus goes on in the story. He says, okay, I know what you're thinking. I know that you don't want to believe I am who I say I am. So thus, to the paralytic, he says, get up, take your mat, and walk away. And what does the paralytic do? He gets up, takes his mat, and walks away. Now, that was the thinking of the Pharisees at the time. They were accusing him of blasphemy because they could not and would not believe that Jesus was actually God. This is still true today. It's still true today. 2017. There are myriads of people who teach the Bible in our town that believe that Jesus is not God. It's still totally, there's hundreds, there's thousands of scholars that study the Word of God, that study the Bible, that would say, nope, Jesus is not God. He's not actually God. There's churches, and I'm not here to bash anybody. I'm not here to be like, oh, well, these terrible people. It's not my job. But, but it's still incredibly prevalent. Almost everyone I meet, if I'm just walking down the street, almost everyone I meet is like, I'm positive about Jesus. You know, he's like, great teacher, great guru. And he had some really cool teachings. And I'm like, well, have you read them? <laughs> they're, like, like, they're really disturbing. <laughs> like, if you actually read some of the teachings of Jesus, these things are hard and very disturbing. And, and to C.S. Lewis's point, I don't know if you've ever heard his little, have you ever heard C.S.'s little syllogism? That Jesus was either a liar, what is it? Lunatic, Lunatic or, Lord. or Lord. And it's true. And I think that's what we're seeing here as the Pharisees confront Jesus. There has to be a decision that's made. Who is this person? He is literally telling a person, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so he can't, he can't be a nice teacher. The Bible just simply does not give us that option. He is either a liar and a nut, as C.S. Lewis says, a nut who claims he's a poached egg, or he is the Lord of the universe. And again, if we truly think that, if you think that he is the Lord of the universe, it makes a large difference in life. But let's look at a couple of different things, the reasons that it makes a large difference in life. I want to just touch on this before we move to the second point. 
authority. That's what believing Jesus is Lord gives us, gives to people, gives to the world, authority, right? It's why he can walk up to Matthew in just a moment, who's in his tax collector's booth, and he says, Matthew, follow me. And the Bible records, Matthew gets up out of his chair, follows him. Because there's a recognition that this is, this is it. This, this is the authority. I have discovered it. This is, this is the Lord, the master of all life. And, and it's really important for us to understand because we live in, under sinful authorities here on this earth. We've had bad parents. We've had bad bosses. That's just how it works on this earth. So it's difficult sometimes for us to think of an authority that would love us. But the Bible is very careful to record, especially in Matthew, and particularly in Matthew chapter 11. The very end of chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, because of that, take my yoke upon you. And what he's saying is, because of sin, your desire in life has been to say, I own me. I own my destiny. I am in control of my life. And that feels good some days, doesn't it? To say that. It feels really good. But some days it's an incredible burden. It's a burden you know you can't bear. And so Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Literally, he's saying, I promise as your Lord that not only will I be your authority, I will carry your burden with you. Think about that. You do not have to carry all the burden for even your own life. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest. True rest. Because finally, for once, there's surrender to the control of Jesus. I don't have to do it all. That's a beautiful thing, y'all. It really does change our lives. It changes how we think about our lives. It changes how we act. It changes how we think about our future, the worries of our future, if Jesus is with (coughs) us on the journey. Second point. Okay, so Jesus first... He heals wrong thinking about his identity. Uh, the Pharisees, they, they're like, there is no way that this man who is standing before us is actually God. And it made all the difference before how the way they treated him. The Pharisees treated him on, on this earth. But also, Jesus goes on. So the next part of the action, let's walk through it really fast. We have the calling, or we don't, it doesn't have to be really fast. We'll go nice and, we'll go nice and slow through it. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little inside joke. Um, (laughs) um, We'll move slowly as Jesus comes to Matthew. We've talked about this already. He says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew immediately gets up from his tax collector's booth and begins to follow Jesus. And then it says, they go and recline at the table. Sounds like fun, actually. They immediately go from there to what's assumed to be Matthew's house. The reason it's assumed to be Matthew's house that they're reclining at and dining at is because it says there's a bunch of tax collectors and sinners there. And obviously, Matthew is in the tax collecting business, so his co-workers are there, and his friends are there. Tax collectors and sinners. And of course, once again, here comes the Pharisees. You can just imagine these guys. Let's get this one. You know, they're like, what do you think you're doing? They're yelling at him. I can't. Sorry, that's a terrible accent. That's a terrible accent. But they, they immediately talk to his disciples, and he, of course, knows their thoughts and overhears them. 
And the Pharisees say to his disciples, what in the world is he doing? Eating with tax collectors and sinners, the dregs of society. He's not supposed to be doing that. And Jesus says, y'all, your thinking is totally messed up. You really have no idea how this world is divided. You have no idea how to judge another human being. Let's talk about that for just a minute. He's talking to these very religious people. And when I say religious, I mean people who were devoted. People who gave their lives in the cause of something. I mean, these guys, these guys were not bad pe- people, as we like to think of bad people, right? And so he's like, you've got, to, you've got to have some different thinking about how the world is divided up. Because the Pharisees had a system. They were like, those are the bad people. We're the good people. And here's how this system works. Those bad people over there do big sins. Me? Yeah, fine. Okay, I make mistakes every once in a while, but I do little sins. All right. Everyone has this grid. You, you, you have this grid. I have this grid that we use to judge people. I remember the grid was actually given to me when I was in college. It was kind of nice. I went to, this, I went to a Christian college. Uh, yeah, that's... yeah. The grid was given to me. It's called Wheaton College. It's up in Chicago. And one of the things they said was, okay, no drinking on campus. Okay, yeah, man, that, that kind of helped in some ways. No tobacco on campus. Ah, bummer deal. Um, and then they were like, no dancing on campus. <laughs> we were like, what? What is this? Because we knew uh, at one time in American Christianity, dancing was a big sin. But obviously I went to school in the 90s dancing in the Christian subculture had moved from big sin over into little sin category. Now, thankfully, in like 2005, Wheaton finally repealed the dancing ban. And I don't think it's because they read scripture, which they could have done in 1950 and figured out that this is not scriptural. I think it was just because of the social pressure, sort of the the societal pressure of, guess what? None of us think of this as a big sin anymore. And this game about big sins and little sins and who we're in, it's happening all the time. And it's constantly shifting if you're using the culture as your gauge. Right? So in the 1950s, there was this guy, there's a New York article about this guy uh, named uh, McCarthy. Have you heard of the McCarthy trials? These, these, like, he, was, he was trying to hunt down communists that were in the government. Joseph. What's that? Joseph McCarthy. Joe, yeah, Joe. That's right. Joseph. And, um, and people, he was, he was hated by many as you might imagine, on this kind of witch hunt to find communists. But they, people wanted to bring him down, but they could never bring him down, even though he was terrible at sexual harassment. I mean, he was just nasty. I mean, he would grab women in his office left and right. But see, the reason no one could bring him down in the 1950s was because in the 1950s, that was a little sin, because he was faithful to his wife. Didn't commit adultery. So he didn't. He was faithful to his wife. And he was grabbing people. Okay, fair. But hang on, I'm getting to a point. Okay. You're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, you're getting upset at him. Holy Understandably, God. she's getting upset. <laughs> That's a big sin. <laughs> okay, but here's my punchline. No, no, there's a punchline. Now, now, Megan, it's different. He would have been taken down very quickly because now in our society, having sex outside of marriage is a little sin, but. Sexual harassment in the office is a big sin. Things have completely reversed. 
in our society. The same thing's true, I mean, you think about homosexuality, right? In like the 1950s, and again, I'm not taking positions here, people, okay? I'm just illustrating how this works. 1950s, big sin, right? Not homophobe, no big deal. Now, homophobe, big sin. Homosexual, no big deal, right? So these things are constantly going, <laughs> fluxing back and forth, back and forth, and we do the same thing, we flux. We move things into different categories. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or you're liberal. It doesn't matter. The game is the same on both sides. So if you're conservative, it might be like, well, I'm clean cut. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I sin. You know, I have the little sins that I mess with in my life. But ultimately, I don't do any of the big sins. Like I'm married or I'm, I'm faithful in these certain things or I'm clean. I'm a churchgoer. Uh, I've got these things that I can use to justify myself to the power behind life. And then, of course, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're liberal also. Again, liberal, I, you know, I care for the environment. I'm very tolerant. And I, you know, I I make sure that I'm I'm giving to, you know, minorities that are in the the place that I live. Whatever it might be. But it's still the same idea of I am trying to justify myself to the power behind life. Even if I don't believe there's a God. It's a game that is played to self-justify. And the whole point of the game, and it's the game that the Pharisees were playing in this passage right here. The whole point of the game is to categorize people into those that do big sins and those that do little sins, like me. So that I can somehow find a way to make sure that I feel when I wake up in the morning that God owes me something. Right? He may not owe me everything. He doesn't necessarily owe me, like, you know, a, a yacht in Miami. But... I've made some sacrifices for you, God. Can't you just give me the little stuff? Can't you give me kids that are decently behaved? Can't you give me that job that I've always wanted? Can't you just provide for me that good life that I think I deserve? This is what the Pharisees were doing. This is exactly what they're doing. They're saying, we have sacrificed for God. Aren't we owed something? And Jesus is like, Do you remember what he said in this passage? He said, go and learn what this means. Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus says, go be crushed. That's what he says. Go be crushed and rebuilt. And what what do I mean by that? I mean by that, Jesus is saying, turn away from your sacrifices for a minute. Turn away. Because if you're honest, the whole, if we're honest about this, the whole Sermon on the Mount was Jesus going, whatever standard you've held up to like big sins over there, little sins over here, whatever standard, I'm going to crush that. (laughs) Because I'm going to teach you that in your heart, you have that little seed, that little acorn of murder. And you have that little seed, that little acorn of adultery. And if the conditions were just right, if the rain came just at the right angle and the sun came out the next day, you are capable of those very things. Has anyone ever, I'm not talking about this room necessarily, you can think theoretically. Has anyone ever truly loved the Lord with all their heart, all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind? Has anyone ever truly loved, think about this for a minute, loved their neighbor as themselves? Do you care for your neighbors around you in the same way that you care for yourself? with the same kind of generosity and love? No. That was Jesus' point. Don't look 
at the sacrifices you think you're making for me. Look at the fact that you can never make enough sacrifices. Be crushed for a moment under the truth of my teaching and of my life. But he says, I desire mercy. Mercy. He's like, look for a minute. Look most importantly at my sacrifice. Look at what I have done. Look at the mercy that I give. Even when you're crushed. Y'all, a litmus test for knowing whether or not you are relying on sacrifices instead of mercy is, how, is sometimes like how angry and how worried you are. So it's an, it isn't a foolproof test case, but it's, but it's important. If you're angry, just angry at life, you wake up frustrated a lot, you, you frustrate your family, you frustrate yourself, you're frustrated at God. If you're just willing to admit it, I'm mad at you, Lord, because you have not gotten me what I want. A lot of us are afraid to go there and just admit it. Or worry. Do you struggle with deep anxiety about life, about future, about things like that? These are, these are like little, these are like dashboard signs. Ding, 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 ding. They're going, something's going on here. Might be relying on sacrifices rather than mercy. In other words, I am trying so hard and yet I'm not getting, I'm not squeezing out of the power behind life the things that I think I really want and the things I really think I need. And Jesus is like, that is a dangerous and painful road. He's like, come to me to not only see the true sacrifice, the sacrifice for all, every single one of your sins, all the sins of the world, but also receive the mercy that can only come from me. And there, in that place, you will find joy. You will. Joy and happiness, maybe for the first time, in that spot, because you've let go. Because you've understood that everything, your very breath that you take in this very moment is a gift that has been given to you by God and you didn't deserve it. But He is so incredibly merciful. He is so merciful to us this morning, y'all. Let us express some of our love for that mercy as we come to the table. That's part of the reason that we come to this table every week. is because we get to see visibly the sacrifice, not that we make, but that He made for us. This is where our eyes must be turned. Away from our own sacrifices and towards His. Let's pray. Lord God, we need... We need your mercy. <laughs> we just do. <laughs> Lord, I confess that I have relied on my sacrifices this week, Lord. I have expected things from you. I've, I've, ex- I've wanted you to owe me things. Lord, I wanted to put you in my debt. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. Father, may we come this morning... And simply sit in front of the cross and receive. Lord, you just, that's what you do. It's your heart. It's how you're wired. You give. You give mercy. You give love. You give grace. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room this morning. Lord, I don't know what their week was like, but I pray that this morning they would receive your mercy. They would feel it. That they would know it. That they would sense it. That they would embrace it, Lord. And that on the other side of that, there would be joy.
Lord, the joy that you promised, the joy that spread to our families, the joy that spread to our neighbors, the joy that is spread to the world around us, Lord, as we get to love deeply and passionately the people that you've put into our lives. Lord, thank you for this gathering this morning where we can worship you with all of our hearts. And we thank you for all the kiddos that are coming in right now. And just the beauty, Lord, of the innocence and trust of your authority in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us that childlike faith to really believe and know in our, in our minds that you are the good authority. That you are the one that we should be yoked to. That you will take care of us. That you'll give us rest. That you'll be gentle with us because of your grace. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, Andrew. So now as we move to the table, this table where we see visibly the sacrifice of Jesus, we're reminded that this sacrifice was for us. It's a sacrifice that we could never make. We, we couldn't take all of the sin. It would crush us. But instead, He was the one who was crushed.